Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What the hell is you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. What the hell is wrong with Sergio Ramos? That's a question we hope to answer by the end of today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. I see it's already a question that's brought a smile to the face of Kieran Murphy. Uh, Hi, Murphy. Well, it's one of the great unanswerables, surely. Well, Ken has tried to answer it in the past and never fully come up with the Comprehensive answer, Ken. I How are you? Phone. Oh, I what was your answer? He's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, was Pepe not the idiot? You call Pepe an idiot. Well, Thanks a lot, Pepe. It's not an either <laughs> or. It's not a zero sum game. There can be two. Yeah. Uh, I think they've got two. But yeah, he is an idiot. But um, he he got away with it. He got away with it. It was a, an amazing game. Well, he didn't get away. He was red carded. Yeah, but they won. That's true. That's what I mean by uh, getting away with it. And they produced a monument to this victory, Real Madrid, this great victory against Barcelona, in the form of a photograph, um, a dressing room photograph, which is, it's like everything these guys do. What was this statistic I saw the other day? Um, They've both played, since the beginning of the 2009-10 season, 231 league games, and they've both scored 254 league goals, Ronaldo Ronaldo and Messi. And now they've both been in a dressing room photograph, which so perfectly encapsulates what they're all about. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, I'm, everybody I'm sure will have seen this. If you haven't, you need to go seek it out uh, or open your eyes because it's, all, it's, it's really all around you on the internet. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and the Real Madrid team celebrating their victory in the dressing room posed together for uh, a collective photograph. Ronaldo, on the extreme left of the photograph, is standing just wearing his little tidy whities and he is ripped. And not only is he ripped, but he's actually flexing. He's tensing his massive musculature. Wow. I'm looking at it here. Oh, in order to look even more, um, you know, comic book sort of I th- ripped. I, I think he'd look better if he didn't tense. You know, because when you're tensing, you're like, well, he's tensing. I mean, we all look great when we're tensing, you know. <laughs> it's like if he, just, if he just stood normally and just displayed his extraordinary physique, then I think... That it, 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 he would look a bit more relaxed. He would look a bit more, I dare to use the word, natural. <laughs> but it's just amazing. This is Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, why is he tensing? 
Why is he tensing as well? He's already got. He's not wearing any physique. pants either. Let's be. You know, I mean, if, if he was wearing a pair of sh- you know shorts. No. I mean, I, I don't know why he's not. We- well, you know, he's there in briefs. Everyone else seems to have their shorts on. He's managed to get them off quick smart. Yeah. Um, and then this is this just a perfect partner picture to the one of Lionel Messi last year with his Barcelona teammates. Um, not all of them. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, the same, exactly the same type of photo, but it was a dressing room photo. Five or six Barcelona players. I can, I can remember Dani Alves and Adriano, Neymar, um, and Lionel Messi wearing the most aggressively uncool outfit. Really, that's imaginable. You know, like um, a sort of a geography teacher who lives alone. <laughs> you know, like every, everybody thinks he's a nice guy, but nobody really wants to talk to him. You know, uh, sir, and Danny Alves is there with these these kind of shades. A male version of Eleanor Rigby. That's basically <laughs> yeah. how he was dressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Alves is wearing gold gold lame shoes, shades. Neymar's got like a, a, a red double-breasted leather Gestapo jacket, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Messi's wearing like a grey pullover, dark chinos, <laughs> a shirt with a sort of comically oversized collar sticking out the top of his of his V-neck. And he just looks like, it's just, wow, Messi just can't wait to get away from these guys. You know, just get home and do whatever it is a man this boring does. Mm-hmm. Probably go straight to bed. But it's just the, the two, the, the difference between them is just hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so similar on, and yet so different in so many ways. <laughs> Quick update on our big trip to New York City next week. We're heading over there with Aer Lingus. We've got a live show in the Brass Monkey in Manhattan on April 13th in the Meatpacking District. And apparently... There's a pretty good contingent of New York second captainers. Murph, we've had well over 1,000 people looking mm. for tickets for the show. It's the, if you've been to the rooftop on the Brass Monkey, in the Brass Monkey, you'll be aware that we won't be able to fit 1,000 of you in there. 1,000 people, no. But uh, hopefully, hopefully you're not going to be too angry if you don't make it. We'll, 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 I'm sure we'll find some way to meet you over there, but you should have received an email back by now if you applied for tickets. Uh, what... Uh, <laughs> Oh no! I just think you—you know—you could offer a secondary price. You know, like go to the cinema with Ked. You know, for uh, for the seven for the overflow, they can all go to the cinema with Ked on Tuesday on Thursday afternoon. As part of our live show, we want to announce your messages to the U.S. audience. Missing someone in the states? Just email editor at secondcaptains.com with whatever shout out you want to broadcast. Uh, the show is also going to incorporate images and video, so please send any embarrassing photos you deem appropriate. Makes much more sense than just contacting your well, that, friends that, and family directly. It's idiotic. I yeah. mean, you know, the cost of these things, Do guys, it through the email us. and that. I mean, the cost is astronomical. So get the emails in ASAP to editor at secondcaptains.com. Let's report on some sport. Tell you one thing, Lionel Messi, when he puts on that um, unbelievably boring outfit and goes home, one thing he doesn't do is go through his taxes with a fine tooth comb. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't... He doesn't really like to spend any time on that at all. Uh, it's not really his area of expertise, um, which which might be why he keeps he seems to keep getting involved in these problems. Um, the latest one of which, I mean, it's just it's generally not been a good twenty four hours from Lionel Messi. One of his worst performances in a long time, mm, yeah. as Real Madrid uh, beat Barcelona pretty convincingly. You know, I mean, this is amazing. You know, it's amazing that that happened. 39 games unbeaten, a, st- a historic run from Barcelona, ended in the lamest imaginable way at home to Real Madrid with all of their uh, great players really not turning up for the game. Uh, Messi among them. Uh, but one place where Messi does turn up is in the Panama Papers. The Panama Papers being this big data dump 
uh, which you can read about in the Irish Times and a lot of other newspapers around the world, uh, a huge le uh, leak of uh, confidential data uh, from a law firm in Panama, Masek Fonseca, and uh, it's essentially uh, shining a light on this massive web of offshore uh, money, uh, which you know a lot of the world's richest people seem to be involved in. There's all kinds of funny uh, stories and interviews uh, from around the world. You want to see the one of the Icelandic prime minister uh, trying to explain. They go, what can you tell me about? I can't remember the name of the the company Vig, uh, Vitris or Vigdis or something like this. What can you tell? And he kind of just literally goes purple before your eyes. What are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, oh, this is all above board. Where, where, where are you, you know, uh, and like gets up and tries to, you know, sort of bundle his way out of the room. All this kind of stuff's going on. Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Putin has apparently uh, got some associates involved with some offshore companies, whatever. And Lionel Messi as well. Uh, now, what's the specific, uh, specific thing that's happened with Lionel Messi? Um, Already, obviously, under indictment in Spain on tax charges. There's going to be a trial uh, scheduled for that in uh, coming up in May, I believe. But um, so, what's the suggestion here? Uh, leaked documents show that Messi and his father owned yet another offshore company in Panama, Megastar Enterprises. <laughs> what <fir> name? <laughs> the first reference to the company in Mossack Fonseca's files came on June 13th, 2013. One day after Spanish prosecutors first filed tax fraud charges against Messi and his father. Uh, an email indicated responsibility for handling the company's paperwork is being transferred to Mossack Fonseca from another offshore corporate agent. Uh, the first reference in the files to the Messi sounding megastar came less than two weeks later on June 23rd, 2013. Through his father, Messi declined to comment for this story. Um, there is a suggestion now in the Catalan newspaper Sport that Messi might sue El Confidencial, which is the outlet in Spain that's reporting the story. I mean, it's kind of a big collaborative effort, effort between a lot of uh, newspapers uh, around the world. Um, you know, so this so this is being done in, in different countries by Süddeutsche Zeitung in Germany, the Irish Times here, evidently Gar the Guardian in the UK. So, you know, another... yeah. Another bad piece of news for Lionel Messi. And Atletico Madrid to come uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, just the, the game you wouldn't want to have. I wonder would the Atletico Madrid players stoop to the level of referring to this kind of stuff. Um, uh, Get your tax affairs in order. <laughs> it's not really the most vicious. As uh, for you, sledging. Neymar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not really the most vicious sledging. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's one more arrow in the quiver, I suppose. You said the Real Madrid won convincingly. Mm. I thought neither team was convinced in the first half. It was incredibly boring, actually. Um, but in the, in the second, even after the Ramos sending off, it was Real Madrid who were really creating. I mean, they were actually ripping through Barcelona on the counter-attack. And Barca just weren't... There was a lack of punch to them, which was really astounding, but you don't normally... Well, of course you don't associate with them. Yeah, they were they were being overrun. They were really they were being overrun in the second in the second half. The longer the half went on, the more feeble Barcelona appeared. Um, the stronger, the more dominant Real Madrid became. And uh, the goal, well, I mean, I, I would you know saying the goal is a matter of time. I mean, when Sergio Ramos got sent off, it certainly didn't look as though Real Madrid would be capable of actually winning. <laughs> you know, you thought at that stage that Barcelona are at least not going to lose this. 
you know, with a, a man up, a team as as accomplished as they are at handling that situation. But they just kept making mistakes and Madrid kept punishing them. I mean, they should have already been 2-1 down at that stage. Gareth Bale's goal was ruled out essentially because he's much bigger than Jordi Alba and it looked unfair when he completely destroyed him in the air and, and scored uh, at the back post. That should have been, that goal should have been given. Yeah, great header. Um, Height doping. <laughs> Height doping. I mean, when are, when are, you know, it's just, it's just not fair. You know, Bale turns up, this you know, huge man, leaping high here. What's Jordi Alba supposed to do? That's not sport. That's not, it's not, it's not, not what I <laughs> it call sport. It was an extraordinarily bad decision. There's no doubt about that. The referee evened that one out a little bit. Um, uh, I was just a bit taller, said Bale diplomatically. I made sure I got over the top. I, did, I made sure I didn't even touch him because I know what Spanish referees are like. It was a very bad decision in my eyes. Um, but, uh, I mean, what's happening here with, with Barcelona? Was this question of Barcelona going, well, we're so far ahead in the league. It was it 10 points clear of Real Madrid at that stage that this isn't really the game that matters this week. The game that matters is the one against Atletico. Yeah, but I don't know if that's the case. With Barcelona players in the Clasico, no matter what competition it's in, no matter how what... You, maybe this is just a cliched view of it at the moment and professional footballers could be more pragmatic than this. But it does seem that they all care about it. So, certainly Sergio Ramos cared about it a lot, but even the Barcelona players should care about it, paradoxically, more than the bigger game during the week in the Champions League. It, you know, going traditionally. Well, if, if you told them that they were don't, they could only win one game, I think they would go for the Atletico Madrid game. They would choose that on a rational basis. It's like, okay, right, sickening as it is to lose to Real Madrid, we would rather win. But that's not the way it works. You know, you can win both games. Um, the best thing is to try and play as well as you can all the time you know keep that rhythm going that kind of winning rhythm that, that that's that they've had i mean as bale is saying uh, football does funny things to teams when you lose you never know what could happen all they need is a few bad results we need a few good ones we're right back in i mean the idea of madrid winning the spanish league is hard to see at this stage there's seven points back i think it's seven games to go yeah hard to see barcelona throwing away that many points yeah uh However, for the Champions League, things this could change it a little bit. I mean, they they could easily come up against each other in the Champions League. Suddenly, you know, I still feel Barcelona turn up to one of these games, they're going to win. You know, I mean, if Luis Suarez had put away his open goal chance in, in the first few minutes, it's probably a very different game. Maybe Sergio Ramos would have got sent off after half an hour <laughs> if that had happened. And then, you know, things could have really got ugly. But that didn't happen. None of these players performed. And I don't know if you can just switch it on and off. I mean, Barcelona will hope they can, and we'll get to see the answer tomorrow night, but this is not a nice opponent to have to play. This is an opponent that's acutely aware of how to make it difficult for you, and will do everything they can uh, to try and play on any little cracks that they think they can see. You think they'd nearly prefer to be playing a Bayern Munich? Or oh, so, absolutely. Almost any other team besides Atletico. I'm not saying Atletico are better than Bayern, but as you say, they are probably worse suited to Barcelona. They're certainly nastier than Bayern. They're more annoying to play against than Bayern are. Um, we do have some... We have, we have one big story in particular, which we are going to get to, um, but just a couple of small ones. Um, yep. Did you see it was Colleen Rooney's 30th birthday party? 30th birthday. I didn't. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Um, happy birthday to Colleen. Mm. Some people say it's a big birthday, you know. 30? Yeah. But I mean, some people say it's the new twenty-one. Yeah, I mean, I I, I wasn't really affected. You were Can you remember your thirtieth birthday party? Yet? I do. Yeah, I remember it. Uh, 
Yeah, it seems a long time ago now. <laughs> it does, yeah. It seems a long time ago. But Colin Rooney's 30. Great. Uh, Wayne uh, reckons he's still got a few more years left at the top. He's a, he's also 30. I uh, was 30 last October. Invited along a few guests to the, to the party, including uh, Michael Carr, Chris Smalling, Phil Jones, Darren Gibson, Darren Fletcher, Johnny Evans, John O'Shea and Wes Brown. What do you notice about most of those players? <laughs> they don't play for Man United. They don't play for Man United. <laughs> they they don't play for Man United. At one point, they may have. Yeah, I mean, Carrick obviously has been there a long time. Still there, Chris Smalling as well. Jones still plays for Man United. Haven't seen much of him, but he's still there. But Gibson, Fletcher, Evans, O'Shea, and Brown. This is still Rooney's crew. You know, he's a captain of Manchester United. <laughs> That's all right, though. You don't have to go to the, down the Roy Keane route of having no friends. And it's in not football. even his own birthday. I mean, it's his wife's birthday. It's true, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I would hesitate to be reading too much into this. No, I just thought it was kind of funny that the more of the guests of the party were former Man United players. <laughs> I mean, the old crew, you know what I mean? But that's... Well, okay. we, we see, we've seen this before with Phil Bardsley, you know, in this, well, play-fighting mode. Mm. It's, again, it's another former Manchester United player. Yeah. He just, I don't know. Maybe, well, maybe you know, when Wayne and Colleen were first going out, she would have got friendly with the, the, the partners of... Those guys, and as, as they've settled down, Colleen hasn't, ha- and you know, become parents, Colleen hasn't had a chance to mix with Marcus Rahul's wife. That may well be it. You know? Yeah. Uh, Ander Herrera's latest squeeze. You know, Colleen Rooney do- hasn't had a chance to, to, to go out socially with those people. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think you're, you're being unfair there, Ken. I mean, it's only natural. Well, in the documentary on BBC last year, there was a moment when Rooney. Colleen gently chastised Wayne for forgetting to bring, I think it was a present for like David De Gea's kid whose birthday it was or something. So I think Colleen Rooney probably does have that statesman, stateswoman-like role around yeah. the club. She's the captain of the, yeah. the partners. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. about to say a different word, weren't you? Beginning well, no, with W. Actually, I, I ending with Ags. I'm, I'm actively erasing that from Let's the English language. Okay, we'll One man and woman at a time, yeah. we need to erase that word. Partners. Well, it's just, it's just the difference. You know, Rocco, you mentioned, I mean, he was a few days ago shocking shocking scenes outside an Argentinian nightclub as Marcus Rocco was seen smoking a cigarette and biting a female companion's white dress. Right, I didn't see that. Now... I didn't see that either. I wouldn't... Well, look, you, you aren't peering into the garbage of daily tabloid <laughs> football stories quite as intently as, as I have spent my life doing. <laughs> but, he, I mean, is that the kind of thing that would have been going on at this time? They're probably all talking about kids. They're probably all saying, oh, you know, little Johnny's doing my head in. No, they, you wouldn't even say, you wouldn't even speak so negatively about your children no. these days anymore. No, she, uh, Johnny's a boisterous boy. He's a, he's a boisterous know, boy. We've got our hands full with that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, he's an annoying little twerp. It's true. Wayne Rooney is an old man by football terms. Does he really feel like he needs to befriend Marcus Rashford? I don't know. Evidently not. <laughs> uh, so, where are we at? Okay. Uh, Leicester City continue to march or uh, uh, close relentlessly on the Premier League title like a, p- a pack of baying wolves. Uh, uh, everyone was waiting for us after the draw between Liverpool and Tottenham. We gave a very good answer, says uh, Claudio Neri. Am I nervous? No, 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 no. He answers four times. I'm very calm. We believe in what we're doing. We believe it's a magical season. We believe next season it will not be the same. So we tried to do our best. Um, so four 1-0 wins in a row in the league is apparently the second longest sequence ever in the Premier League of 1-0 wins. I'm trying to... I couldn't find out what the 
most uh, most one nil wins was the one that, that stuck in my head was the one when Manchester United won the title in '96. Yeah, and they seemed to win a ton of games one nil. But I went and looked at that, and they didn't actually win. You know, four in a row one nil. They they just had a lot of one nil wins, but they interspersed it with a few. I think it's stuck in, in people's heads because Cantona scored. Cantona the, kept scoring the winning goal yeah. and one nil wins. Yeah, but they weren't all in a row. At least I don't think they were. Maybe I managed to screw that up as well. But uh, if you know, maybe you could let us know because I couldn't find out. We're going to talk to Jonathan Wilson about Leicester very shortly. Actually, um, there was a, a couple of moments of of good fortune for Leicester as well. And mainly, I thought the penalty when you know when Mane goes around your goalkeeper and you still don't let in a goal. He looks in, especially when the ball bounces off the defender's arm, who's standing there in front of the goal, right? Is his arm in a natural position? Well, what is a natural position? You know, pretty much any position that the arm is in has to be a natural position unless it's being, you know, ripped off somehow, right? Hmm. I mean, it's they're, they're all natural positions at the end of the day. Consider uh, a photograph. I mean, where naturally do you put your hands when you pose for a photograph? Sometimes it's hard to know where to put them. It is them. very hard sometimes. Do I put them yeah. in my pockets? Do I fold them? Yeah. Do I put them on my hips or do I just kind of... Cristiano Ronaldo like style. Ronaldo, yeah. yeah or just, just get the pecs. Get it. What do I do? Little V-shape going. They're all natural positions. I mean, I thought in in the case where you're the last man, you're the def- you're a defender blocking the goal mouth and a ball hits you on the hand, to me, or the arm, to me... I think that's going to be I, the whole natural position. I, mean, I think the more intuitive way to think about it is how close you have your hands to your body, and are, are you actually trying to handle the ball? I, I, I don't. It didn't look to me like he was. To be honest, I would have thought the Wes Moore was a Wes Morgan in the second half. It was Robert Hoot. That uh, was a Robert Hoot in the second half. Uh, where did have the arm out? Uh, the ball was whacked off it. Is, do you know, is that the one? Yeah. You're see, I, yeah. Th- I thought that one wasn't a penalty, and the Darren right. Simpson I think that's a little bit was. more likely. Well, if you're going by the natural position of the arm, I mean, he, he had his arm a mile out from his. Uh, oh, he had his arm down. He had his arm down by his side. Mm. I mean, it, it 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 hit his fingertips of an arm I, that's that's down low. I think I think you'd be. I thought that was definitely an unintentional contact mm. with the ball, um, which was kicked at him from quite a short distance away. Whereas Danny Simpson was able to watch the ball all the way onto his arm and make sure it didn't go anywhere near the goal. His arm's not there. I think the ball probably bounces in into the net off him. Might you know? catch a bit of the side of his midriff. I think if he if he if his arm's not there, but anyway, just enough to take it away from the. The, goal, the, the penalty's not given, the red card's not given, the goal doesn't happen, and Leicester win the game 1-0. And maybe this is the reason why. Maybe this, maybe that has something to do with the, the fact that in football, uh, in every other sport, there's a name for what happens when, it, when an unfancied uh, competitor, uh, you know, uh, one of the worst competitors actually in the sport, well, in the, in the division, say this time last year, literally bottom of the league, right? Mm-hmm. Literally, Leicester... The 3rd of April 2015, bottom of the league, seven points off, seven points behind the relegation drop zone, right? Now, top of the league, seven points clear at the top. In most of the sports, you might find, you might hear people saying, using the Tyler Hamilton, Lance Armstrong phrase, not normal. Mm. That was how, that was what Lance used to say about performances he was particularly impressed by, not normal. This doesn't happen in football. And I wonder if maybe it has to do with the fact that Clearly, there's so much of it owes to kind of a lot of it has to do with random chance. The Simpson moment that could easily be a goal. Mane could just knock that in, or the penalty could be given. Simpson could be sent off, they could score the penalty. None of that happens. Hoot, the same thing. Penalty's not given. They get away with it. Leicester managed to score. There's a lot of things that could happen one way or the other. 
such that even if a club, even if a club like Leicester, the reason that this, the reason that we're talking about this now is because of what happened of the Sunday Times report yesterday. So the Sunday Times report, for those who haven't read it, uh, essentially was a kind of uh, uh, like a sting operation where they secretly recorded a doctor, an Irish doctor, in fact. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bonner. Dr. Bonner, Mark Bonner, um, talking uh, about how he could, talking about the business of prescribing performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, they were going to, he was going to, he was telling the Sunday Times reporters about how this all worked. No, again, not knowing that they were Sunday Times reporters. They were no, he didn't know that they were Sunday Times reporters at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if he had, he, he might have, been have so free with said quite so much. Um, he seemed to be under, under the impression that they were prospective clients. Um, he was saying, uh, he and he claimed, or it has been claimed, uh, that he had worked with footballers from clubs including Arsenal, Chelsea, Birmingham, and Leicester. Right, so there you've got it. You've got an acclaimed, an alleged link with no further corroborating evidence. And this is the thing Leicester referred to in their club statement. They said, we're very disappointed that the Sunday Times has chosen to publish this thing with no you know, actual evidence beyond the word of this guy. Uh, the doctor himself, uh, Mark Bonner, you know, I mean, he has a, a WordPress blog, which is linked to his Twitter account, uh, has the following description. Doctor, advantage card player, sports exchange trader, pro punter, racehorse owner, businessman, political supporter and activist, entrepreneur, essayist, epistemologist, polymath, <laughs> spokesperson, notable philanthropist. Oh, no, not philanthropist. Now, he spelled epistemologist and philanthropist wrong. But <laughs> With an F. Uh, philanthropist, he's he's missing the second H and an epistemologist, he's got an O in the middle instead of an E uh, but I mean when you've got so many competing spheres of expertise mm-hmm. it's, it's I suppose natural that some tiny details go amiss, I mean what I, you know should you judge someone's credibility from their spelling, well apparently people who look at uh, CVs uh, for, you know, in job applications do, yeah, it is it is a big Credibility killer, <laughs> inability to spell. But you know, aside from that, I'd be more concerned just with someone listing that amount of things in any description of themselves. To be honest, I mean that polymath. <laughs> I'm a polymath. I could add a couple of other words to that list. To be pa- honest, pardon my ignorance. What is what is a polymath? Someone who knows everything. Uh, so, or rather, a master of many, a master of many disciplines. I think if if that's like the eleventh thing in your list of things that you do, I mean, I, I you know, I don't really see the point in mentioning polymath yeah. after you've already it's mentioned true, yeah. ten kind other of things. Surely just yeah. polymath. I mean, surely that covers yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah, and keeps your little bio shorter. It's just a bit of a clunky bio. That's all. It's a very clunky bio. But you know, so he, okay, so so he's saying uh, the Sunday Times evidence. Now, I mean, I'm the Sunday Times investigative team. Uh, you know, has done some great work. You know, they did they did the work, a lot of the leading work on the FIFA investigation and so on. You know, they know how to do, use Google. I'm sure they're well aware of this <laughs> WordPress bio, right? They, you know, they know this stuff. And they've, there's a lot of stuff that, that they heard from this guy that they can't report for legal reasons. Those libel laws we have over here that Donald Trump looks at so enviously from across the way that he wants to bring to the United States. We, you know, uh, those libel laws prevent you from from saying some of the things that you know. So they obviously have some stuff to back this up. This link with Leicester, uh, you know, this claim link. Now they say there, there's no more uh, there's no more evidence behind it. And at the moment there isn't. Okay, that's that's mm-hmm. that's fair enough. 
Um, in the case of how, how credible is this doctor, I mean, the, you do get this pattern a lot of the time when, when people... When, when we're talking about the doctor's credibility, it's important to remember, first of all, he's not like a doctor who's coming forward and saying, by the way, this is all happening. He's a guy who's been tricked, right? Yeah. And he's a guy who thought he was in one situation and he, he was in a different situation. And you've got to think also what his motives might have been in that situation. He's, he, he's got a prospective client. He wants to sell himself as, you know, uh, a guy who knows the, the ways of, of doping and I can be your guide on your quest. You know, I can help you. Uh, this is what, I'm, you know, for a fee. Uh, I can help you uh, use this, this, and this. You know, you won't get caught. Oh, and I've, I've worked with loads of people. I've worked with all the top guys, you know, and, and you list off a bunch of people who you worked with. Uh, and that helps to create a, you know, you know, a, a sense, an impression of authority, a wow factor. expertise. Yeah. So it, what I'm saying is that in this situation, he does have a commercial motive to, a clear commercial motive to, to brag and to big up the kind of people that he's actually worked with. That doesn't mean that he's not telling the truth. It means that he has a motive to, to exaggerate. That's, that is the case. For, you know, we don't want to be in a situation where we're like, well, this, is, this, is real, this doctor is obviously a ludicrous figure. He, he, he's a farce. He has no credibility. You know, we can't take this seriously. You know, I think you have to kind of look at this. I mean, it is interesting. Um, obviously, we talked about this issue in some detail with Richie. We're talking about this issue in some detail with Richie on the other show. Yeah. Um, but you know this whole uh, this uh, this whole idea of of what doping uh, of 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 where doping is at in football. Just on the credibility of the doctor, of what you talk about there, and the the idea that, and certainly the football world likes to close, the close ranks is the right term. But there seemed to be even on Saturday night, uh, there seemed to be a lot of hostility towards the story straight away. And in fairness, it's it's not. I would describe it as maybe an incomplete story from the Sunday Times. As well, you say, there is only there's no names. There's no. I'm not even so much. There's no names. Allegations. But there's also no. There's no sort of follow up. You know, some of the other stuff that they've done. Um, that that may yet be in the pipeline, though. You know, previously when they've done these things, it's been it's they've kind of uh, rolled it out over over a number of weeks. It hasn't just been a true. True, a but there has been a little bit more. You know, for example, with the. Uh, Russian story. Yeah, there was a lot of great stuff around the the, the Russian story. The more detailed, ah, in fairness, they were criticised in some quarters for extrapolating too much from those uh, all the blood tests that they had experts look at because a lot of people said a lot of other experts said, look, you can't actually look at these blood tests and extrapolate without knowing all the other factors involved. So it's not as though they've the, every. What I'm saying is these stories by their nature aren't necessarily perfect, and this definitely isn't the perfect or complete picture of something. It's all based on one. Uh, one guy and one doctor who has been um, hoodwinked, if that's the right way of phrasing it. But that's not to say that nothing stacks up. I mean, the, the whistleblower goes to the Sunday Times and says to them, look, this is what's happened here. I've, I, I was doping. This doctor was giving me the stuff. I was caught in, in order to get less of a sentence. I provided the UK Anti-Doping Agency with loads of information. They did nothing. So I'm coming to you guys please nail, nail them. So they go, they send undercover people in to nail them and they succeed pretty easily. You know, so the everything that, the, there's going to be no verification just yet about the 150 people. But what we do know is this doctor, uh, without much prompting, was happy to advocate all these performance-enhancing drugs to yeah. these undercover reporters. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it, there, there are some questions that are going to have to be um, clarified by the UK Anti-Doping Agency. Because there's a bit of disagreement as to whether they 
you know... Have jurisdiction. That was one of the issues. Uh, also, to what extent they notified, was it the British Medical Council, who are, who are you know, they reckoned the body whose problem this was, you know? Um, and so that will, that will kind of play out, and that's, you know, but you know, the, I suppose the, the questions of responsibilities of doping agencies is the, is the part of the story where a lot of people tend to begin to nod off, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, the question here is, you know, is this guy... Is he kind of, you know, a sort of a guy who's, who's, who's trying to drum up business for himself by kind of plugging into this, you know, this whole idea, everybody's doing it, you know, and now, of course, I know X, Y, and Z who've done it and I've prescribed drugs for X, Y, and Z and here you can, because he's making money out of it, or is this symptomatic of, of a wider thing that's going on? The other point about Dr. Bonner is <laughs> I'm amused by the, Nate. so the undercover athlete, goes in for the first time and within pretty much straight away your man saying look uh, the runner told him that he was struggling to recover from training and the doctor instantly suggested he might have hormone deficiencies my approach is very simple says Dr Bonner I do some blood tests to have a look at your hormones so looking obviously at testosterone human growth hormone then he goes on in the same appointment he says obviously some of these treatments I use are banned on professional circuits you have to be mindful of that uh, you know it's how you do it microdose off cycle off season things like that by the second appointment, your hematrocyte red blood cell count is, if I'm being honest, a little on the lowish side. <laughs> the way that you would boost that potentially is to use something like EPO, which you may have heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of us have heard of EPO at this stage. Bonner wanted to give him, I think this is still the second day yet, is he wanted to give him an injection of testosterone at a surgery that day. And he did leave the surgery with prescriptions for two banned performance enhancing drugs, one of them a human growth hormone, the other a steroid hormone. So it seems like he, Dr. Bonner certainly gets into the nub of it very quickly yeah. um, and, and, and really starts prescribing some shit. Uh, and he almost, sounds, he almost sounds like I would if I had to impersonate the role of a doctor who was going to prescribe some drugs. Uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily radiate a sense of this is a guy who's clearly at the top of of his game, you know, in terms of the complexity of what you may have heard of EPO, you know what I mean? So, so I was thinking when I, I was reminded of uh, Angel Heredia, who was this, uh, who was a, like a Mexican, a former discus thrower, who ended up sort of uh, helping athletes, including Marion Jones, to dope, uh, ended up, you know, being caught and turning kind of state's witness in the, in the United States. Um, did a great interview a few years back with Spiegel magazine. Um, and he just sounded a little bit different when he talked about this kind of stuff. For instance, uh, so they say, you became a therapist for the athletes in the matters of drugs? And he says, more like a coach. Together we found out what was good for which body and what the decomposition times were. I designed schedules for cocktails and regimens that depended on the money the athletes offered me. Street drugs for little money, designer drugs for tens of thousands. Usually I sent the drugs by mail, sometimes the athletes came to me. It's about So with Marion Jones, it was about the recovery phases. In 2000, she competed in one event after another. She needed to relax. I gave her EPO, growth hormone, adrenaline injections, insulin. Insulin helps after training. Together with protein drinks, insulin transports proteins and minerals more quickly through the cell membrane. I'm like, well, this guy really seems to know what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, uh, CJ Hunter, her husband at the time, and her trainer, Trevor Graham, mixed her three substances in one injection. I advised them against it because I thought it was risky. You know, he's he's well aware of all the little details here. Yeah, there's a, yeah. it reminds me a bit of Dr. Michele Ferrari. He seems to kind of know his stuff. Mm. Seems to really research this in depth. If I was a doping athlete, I'd want someone like this guy. <laughs> Somebody sounded a bit more like this guy. But but that interview was very interesting because um, he raises some some points which are tricky when you when you when you get to thinking about them. Go on. Um, for instance, <clears throat> at one point, Spiegel said to him, 
do you advocate the authorization of doping? You know, the legalization, I guess. He says, no, but I believe we should authorize the use of EPO, IGF, which is insulin growth factor, and testosterone, as well as adrenaline and epitestosterone, substances that the body produces itself, simply for pragmatic reasons, because it is impossible to detect them, and also because of the fairness aspect. Um, now, the, the fact that fairness? it's... Fairness? Well, fairness. This is, this is the issue Spiegel immediately say, are you serious? Fairness? And he says, yes. Take, for example, the most popular drug, EPO. EPO changes the hemoglobin. This is interviews from a few years ago. So, you know, EPO may not necessarily be the most popular drug anymore. EPO changes the hemoglobin value, and it's simply the case that people have different hemoglobin levels. Authorizing the use of EPO would enable the fairness and equality that supposedly everyone wants. After all, there are genetic differences between athletes. So Spiegel say differences between living things are called nature. You want to make all athletes the same through doping? And so already says um, normal athletes have a level of three nanograms of testosterone per milliliter of blood. The sprinter Tim Montgomery has three nanograms, but Maurice Green has nine nanograms. So what can Tim do? It isn't doping with endogenous substances that's unfair. It's nature that's unfair. He basically says we should only ban drugs which are dangerous, amphetamines, steroids, things which have you know deleterious effects on health, stuff which is endogenously produced in the body. Well... That's different. And it's interesting that he, he makes a point. The same point is made by Tyler Hamilton in his book, uh, The Secret Race, <clears throat> which essentially is like people talk about, you know, drug cheating being unfair. But, you know, what about the fact that life is unfair? You know, he says um, uh, that, uh, that EPO granted the ability to suffer more push yourself farther and harder than you'd ever imagined in racing and training. Races, this is a quote again, weren't rolls of the genetic dice or who happened to be on form that day, they didn't depend on who you were, they depended on what you did, how hard you worked, how attentive and professional you were in your preparation. So that's a doper's view of why doping actually makes, uh, evens out the natural unfairness of people being born with different physical capacities. Lance Armstrong apparently had a, a normal resting, you know, average hematocrit of 39. No way are you winning the third advance with that. You know, but someone else might have a natural hematocrit of 48. Why should Lance accept being beaten by this guy just because he happens to have, you know, different uh, natural hematocrit Well, that's level? a lovely, uh, I don't know, an equitable way of looking at sport uh, by from Tyler Hamilton there. So I assume the areas, the physical areas in which he is superior to other cyclists, he's happy enough to maybe roll back in that, you know, like he might have superior leg strength. Is he going to, I don't know, maybe do some sort of exercises that reduce his leg strength just to just to even everything up? Mm. It just seems too convenient to say, well, this guy had a had a higher hematocrit level. So just to make it fair, I'm going to get up to that level through nefarious means. I don't think it's going to clean up uh, or make much less complex the problem of drugs in sport when you say, right, 35 percent of the field are allowed to take drugs <laughs> and the other 65 aren't because they're mm. the 65 percent that were blessed genetically yeah. i definitely i i don't think that's the solution to to the problem of uh, of doping in and sport the, the thing is that the people who are penalized then are the people who are naturally good because they don't benefit as much from the drugs as the people who people can yeah. make much bigger improvements well if you remember the early days of epo once the uci I mentioned mentioned the ancient olympics there well once the uci did start getting Oh, there was doping in the Asian Olympic zone. Getting a bit of Lance there, getting um, a handle on it. Well, they didn't have a handle on it, but the initial very rudimentary way that they dealt with EPO was to say, right, 
there's a maximum hematocrit level here. So yeah. if you're above 50, well, you're getting, I'm sorry, you're getting pinged there because mm. nobody should be above 50. So the thing there was that people who are at 42, like you're talking about 39, were saying, oh, Grant. I've got a well, lot I've, of hematocrit. Yeah, time. so they legally were actually entitled to get up to the same level. So is the early way, no, that wasn't, that wasn't what the UCI were trying to create. But just by the nature of the way they went about it originally, that is what they created. They created uh, an actual legal framework within which people could pump themselves up to a certain point to to get with. But just sorry, just to go back on the point that your doctor for the what's his name, the Heredia, the Mexican, Heredia, the Mexican. Yeah, yeah. This idea that oh, EPO it's safe because it's already produced in the body, oh, human growth hormone all this kind of thing. By the same logic, blood doping. I mean, you've, it, blood is produced in your body, so if you're just putting your own blood back in, well, mm-hmm. that's all. I mean, it's actually not all safe if you're using, if you, if it's not being prescribed for you for medicinal purposes. This goes this goes to the heart of the idea that you just legalize everything and it's all going to be very well looked after and everybody's going to go to these great doctors and they're all going to be making sure that it's all very safe. That's actually not how it would work. If it, everything was legalized, you'd have the people who couldn't afford it just taking chances and getting stuff off the internet and shoving EPO into their veins uh, and making themselves severely sick. You know, there are side effects to these to these uh, medicines and using them in, when you don't actually need to use them is not necessarily very safe. No, not necessarily. But if it's done under medical supervision in, in a controlled environment, then maybe it's got a safe chance of being safer than if it's currently done in a furtive way. You know where you're trying to get away with it, and yeah, possibly true with the top guys who can afford the top doctors, but mm. not for the vast majority of sports people. Some of whom are probably amateurs, and a lot of whom are poorly paid professionals mm. who have a go uh, already. Do I know? I'm not naive enough to think that they're not already trying stuff. But if you get to a point where it's legalized, people there seems to be an assumption that everyone's just going to use the drugs that are already there. They're going to use these nice medicinal drugs uh, that that already serve a function to human beings, and they're going to be in a position where they can use them safely. I really don't see how that's the case because mm. most people can't afford. It's crazy money you're talking about for a lot of this stuff mm. and, uh, and and certainly for the top doctors. So you're going to get a lot of people un- either unsupervised or supervised by uh, doctors with, who use that, who, we could use that term very loosely about pumping God knows what into themselves. Mm. What about the example of uh, Lionel Messi? Mm-hmm. Well, if Lionel Messi was left to his own natural devices, to play the hand that nature had dealt him, let's say, he would not be able to pick up the golden ball, let alone win the golden ball five times. Yeah. So, is that problematic? Yeah, I don't know. The Messi one's a funny one. That we, what he had was growth hormone treatment when he was a kid, when he was, wasn't when he was brought over to Barcelona originally mm. to allow him to... I mean, the argument that I've always heard is to allow him to grow to a, a, a natural, a sort of average size, you know, an average height for... Um, mm. An average height, I'd say, an, would be an a better, way, the better way, to, way of putting the natural height. Because, yeah. you know, in, in, in natural terms, his height wouldn't have been sufficient, I, I think, to enable him to have a career in professional soccer. Yeah, as the Sports Illustrated article I'm reading here says that uh, it was a... $1,000 per month across two years from the age of 12 for the growth hormone treatment that corrects a deficiency allows him to reach his natural height at a normal rate of growth. Mm. You know, the argument there is maybe that happened when he was 12 or 13 to get him to a point that he was, as I say, reaching a natural height at a normal rate of growth. It's a different, it's very different to somebody 
I mean, was his natural height is, is his height without recourse to... Yeah, his natural height is his height, height without recourse to medical treatment. I mean, people have medical treatment all the time to improve their physical situation. You know what I mean? We'd, we'd all be in a bad way. You know, I, I would be in a bad way without being, without being able to take insulin every day. Insulin is another thing that's on the WADA band list. If I didn't take it every day, I would die. Um, you know, Lionel Messi uh, would be very short. He wouldn't be a professional footballer. In order to get to, in order to, get to the level that he's at, he had to take... What is a banned substance? Now he now it's fine to take banned substances for medical reasons, but at what point does it become a sort of like say Lance's logic? Looking, I mean, we're talking about Lance Armstrong. Okay, I'm not suggesting he's necessarily a paragon of of rationality, <laughs> cool thinking in this, but he's thinking, well, you know, nature has given me this hematocrit of 39, um, but what I want more than anything on earth is to be a is to be a cyclist. So why can't I do what I need to do in order to get up there to compete with the guys who naturally have more than me? You know, in the sense of Lionel Messi could be like, well, nature has decreed that I'm four for two. I think he was four for two when the, when the treatment started, you know, but I want to be a professional football player. Well, Lance Armstrong didn't need um, a, a, any, didn't need EPO to get to a healthy, natural level of uh, a hematocrit level. You know, 39, I don't know what, what the average is, but I'm sure 39 is just fine. I don't know oh, if there's any... Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. whereas Leo Messi, the problem back then was that he wasn't going to be growing to uh, uh, his his natural height. Yeah. Uh, and, and also he was 12 years of age. Yeah. It's slightly different uh, to making the decision wanna, as a grown adult. When uh, you're in yeah, I want to absolutely point out that I don't see any issue whatsoever with anything that Leo Messi did. I think it's absolutely fine. You know, it's medical treatment. It, but, that's, but that's the problem. A lot of these things are medicines. You know, people think of them as being like, uh, you know, oh... Uh, you know, like the the kind of the old East German pills, you know, this kind of awful stuff that sends your system haywire and causes all kinds of problems. When in reality, that's not necessarily that's not really uh, what we're looking at here. It's a more it's more subtle than that, and the distinctions are a lot more blurry than they used to be. There are so many more drugs than there used to be. There's just a general medicalization of everyday life compared to even you know 10 or 20 years ago. And increasingly, this is a, is a very, very difficult area to police. That's it for Kennedy's Report on Sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Jonathan Wilson, uh, this latest 1-0 victory for Leicester, it's four in a row. Is this string of 1-0 wins as impressive as the days when Jamie Vardy was banging in the goals earlier in the season and Mahrez was playing a lot better? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, if you look at that early part of the season, I think they, they didn't keep a clean sheet in the first nine games and they've kept 10 in the last 14. So um, it, it certainly puts paid any thought that this is somehow Nigel Pearson's team and Ranieri's done nothing because he clearly has made changes over the season that have made them much more defensively resilient. And there's, I think there's actually there's a, there's an interesting parallel here with what Forrest did in 77-8. Um, that they began the season... Um, I guess with few expectations, but and playing relatively attacking football, they they beat Manchester United four nil at Old Trafford, which was sort of the moment when everybody sort of woke up to the fact they might win the title. And immediately after that game, Peter Taylor came out and said, "Right, that's it. You're not going to see us attack ever again this season." Or, or you know, words to that effect. 
and you know they they ground their way to the title with with a series of one nil wins and nil nil draws. So uh, you know the, the parallels between the two, I think, uh, have, have increased as the season's gone on. So you're talking about these this sort of new lesser towards the end of the season as very much a deliberate tactical construction as opposed to a team who are just like a lot of other teams when they're in the hunt to win the Premier League are just tightening up a little bit and just doing enough to get by. Well, I think the two go hand in hand. I, I think. Um, yeah, there's, there's probably yeah through through November. I mean, yeah, well, it was, well, September wasn't it when they conceded the five against Arsenal, but yeah, they they conceded two against Southampton, late in two against West Brom. I think at the end of October, and I, they, they, there must have been a realization there that the defense is a bit shaky, and that if you're going to improve anything in this team, Mars is doing fine, Vardy's doing fine, the front end of the side works. Let's let's get the back right. So I think it's partly just that that there was clearly a problem there. Let's let, let, you know, let's let's improve that. That's the thing we can address. But uh, you know, I think it makes sense as well that um, you know, as you get close to the end of the season, as the sort of the, you know, the pressure increases, that you're sort of ticking games off. You know, keep it tight. A draw's fine. They've got the lead, um, and and you know, they're in that happy position where you know they they can draw three or four. Well. Yeah, they probably can draw three or four games oh, yeah. between now and the end of the season. But certainly, yeah, from four or five games ago, they could think we can draw three or four of these. We don't have to win every game. Um, uh, and if there's a tightening up as well, well, that, that helps. It focuses minds. Just keep a clean sheet and we're all right. Claudio Ranieri said after the game, we believe in what we are doing. We believe this is a magical season. Uh, assuming that it's not actually a magical season, what do you think is going on? I, I, think, well, I kind of think it is a magical season. I mean, um, I, I think... Yeah, there's a, there's a huge number of different factors. Um, one thing, that, yeah, I, I think the last season they were never as bad as they looked. You know, if you if you look at match reports for, from the first or two thirds of last season, huge numbers of them say, yeah, less a bit unlucky to lose this one. So although they were bottom beginning of April last season, that was a slightly false position. I mean that, yeah. That's that's explaining what, how they've jumped from bottom to top. It doesn't explain, um, yeah. But what I'm saying is they shouldn't have been bottom beginning of April last season. They could have been like sixth or seventh bottom beginning of April. It's still remarkable what's happened. Mm. I think you've had six or seven players who've, who've hit form, hit the form of their lives simultaneously, and they fed off each other. So I don't think Mahrez has ever played as well as this. Vardy's never played as well as this. Drinkwater's never played as well as this. Albrighton's never played as well as this. Wes Morgan's never played as well as this. Uh, Kante's never played as well as this. That's all come together, and they've all fed off each other. The confidence is built. They're all um, taking positivity from, from each other. I think you've got to give Ranieri credit for being astute enough when he arrived not to change too much, To but then also give him credit for the for the uh, slight tweaks he's made. I think uh, it's a very unusual season in that all the big teams have had major problems this season. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see another year where United, City, Chelsea, Arsenal lose you know, 30, 36, 37 games between them. That, that's just not going to happen again. So, so the, you know, the, the ground was there for if somebody was going to make a burst, this was a season to do it. Um, and, and I... I, I, I guess, um, yeah, is, I mean, that, that, those Alan Pardew programme notes, I think it was a really stupid thing to say. I think it was a really bitter tone to it. But there was some truth in there that they, they have had luck with injuries or, or their medical departments work wonders, but they, they, they have been able to select pretty much uh, you know, the same team week after week. That's clearly helped. And they have had 
yeah, the odd bit of luck here and there. The fact that they you know, two good penalty shouts against Southampton weren't given. I don't think either of them were nailed on penalties, but another game they could have been given and they weren't. So those kind of things are gone for them. So yeah, there's a whole series of, of different things and put them together and, and uh, you know, it does feel magical. There might be something less magical and more nefarious at play, Jonathan, if the Sunday Times story is to be believed. This is a, a topic we deal with in detail elsewhere in today's podcasts. But do you give much credence to the idea that maybe a Leicester player or player a players could be involved in performance dancing drugs? Um, I think it's possible. Um, I'm not sure why we sort of necessarily single out Leicester over other teams. I don't think it's more likely to be Leicester than anybody well, else. The, the reason would be, I mean, the obvious reason would be that there's this stunning improvement. You know, this they've taken 91 points over the last year. I mean, which is 18 more than the well, next yeah, best team in the Premier the, League. Well, yeah, and also the story did reference Leicester, Birmingham, Arsenal and Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. They were named in this. And it's just that in, in most sports... You know, they, they would have the expression not normal for this. But football is kind of immune to that. And the question is really, why do you think in football there's a reluctance to to, to look at that answer when uh, in, in every other sport it would almost be the first thing that, that people would say? Um, so I mean, what, what I was going to say with, with Leicester is that I'm not I mean, yes, they have been named by, uh, by Dr. Boner. Um, but I mean... I don't think there's anything in, in Leicester's style of play that makes you suspicious. It's not like Juventus in the late 90s where you look at them play and think, how do they maintain that intensity? I don't think Leicester have been noticeably intense this season. So you know, when I say I'm not sure you'd single them out. Would you I not say that, that Jamie Vardy and, and N'Golo Kante are noticeably intense players? I mean, I don't mean, again, like, I, I you know, there's absolutely... You're no, not accusing like, individual no, players. I'm not, no, I'm not accusing them. But I'm saying, you know, based on their style of play, you could say, well, these guys are, are, are physically very impressive. Yeah, but I, I don't think. I mean, I, okay, I, I need to. You, know, you need to look at the stats for intense sprints and things. But I think the way Leicester play, essentially sitting off. Um, I think they they're very economical in how they use their energy. I, I think. I mean, clearly Vardy and Kante are extremely fit players, but I, I think they they sort of look fit because of the system up to, up to a point. That you know they they do sit off. There are periods of inactivity, and then suddenly there's a burst of activity, and that's what you notice. Um, I mean, I, I'd, on, a, you know, on a more general point, I'd be surprised if there weren't a pattern of drug taking in, in football. Um, I, I, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, if you if you go as, as somebody like me who goes to the gym twice a week, takes it, yeah, you know, semi seriously, you, you know that in gyms across certainly across London, supplements are being taken, and those are. Probably 80-90% legal, but some people kind of go slightly further than that. And it doesn't matter if you're a kind of casual gym user in, in, you know, in terms of you're not going to be tested or anything. So if, if people at sort of my pathetic level are taking supplements to I mean, yeah, be that yeah, zinc or magnesium to, to improve recovery or uh, stuff Yang Arala, which sort of gives you a kick like caffeine but, but doesn't give you the jitters that caffeine gives you, you know, that, that sort of stuff is regularly being sold just in normal gyms to normal people. So, of course, football clubs are going to be giving people supplements. And and then the question is, where do you draw the line? What's legal? What's not legal? And as we've seen with the Sharapova case, that, that can change over, over time. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all if football clubs are pushing the boundaries and some, some go beyond it. Or maybe not necessarily the clubs, but certain individual players who have you know personal training regimens, you know, see people you know, outside of club training sessions. If they if they go beyond the line, that's not to say that there's necessarily credibility to to the stories on Sunday. But I'd be amazed if if everybody were clean. Jonathan, we'll let you go. Thanks a million. Yes, thanks. Yeah, as Ken mentioned earlier on during the report on sport, in fact, there there is a lot more 
doping chat with Richie Sadler. Richie is in studio for our second podcast today. Just that point that Jonathan raised there about this new Leicester, this the Leicester of the second half of the season, or certainly the latter part of the season. I uh, it's a fair point that there's a certain clarity to focus when you are a more defensive team. When you just think, right, just let's keep a clean sheet. It's a, it's the oldest trick in football, really. Yeah. But if we can just focus on conceding zero goals, we're going to be we're, we're going to do okay. Yeah. Well, what were we saying about Leicester when they um, when they had nine games to go? Was that five more wins would probably be enough to win them the league? Not mathematically, but given the fact that it's hard to see everyone else picking up maximum points, five wins would probably do it. They've already got three of those. Two more wins, that would mean, you know, if we were correct, two more wins out of the next six matches. And who have they got to play? Man United away, West Ham at home, Chelsea away, Everton at home, Swansea at home, Sunderland away. You know, you could see there's a few of those tricky-ish, tricky enough games. It's still possible for this to blow up, but it's looking ever less likely. Um, As regards, you know, whether being a defensive team makes it easier, I'm not sure. I mean, there's always the struggle to score. You know, if you go goal down, suddenly it becomes a little bit of a panic. But they've got a little bit of panic room now. Yeah, and I do feel that they might need a little bit more out of Mares for the last few games. He seemed very tired. Uh, he still had touches and the usual control to his possession, but he looked, he looked happy enough to be taken off this time, I thought. <laughs> he, he seemed to be a bit out of gas, so they need a little bit from him towards the end of the season. We are joined by Dermot Cargan in Spain. Dermot, to chat about the uh, well, you're at the game, so I suppose the atmosphere, first of all, it was um, it was a funny one, and particularly with the sucker punch at the end. What, what was the atmosphere actually like at the new Camp? It was weird, all right, because it, it was very kind of emotional day with the Johan Cruyff tribute before the game and the video and, and the people holding up the cards with, with Gracias Johan. It was very kind of emotional. It was a kind of feel-good feeling around it. And I think as well, because Barca were on such a good run, they're so well set up, you know, to, to maybe repeat the treble next year, that there wasn't that tension or competitive tension around it going into it. Then at the end, when Madrid hit them with the sucker punches, it was just quiet. It was, it's strange when a ball goes in at the camp now against Barcelona, everything just dies and it's really quiet. And you're kind of looking around wondering, has this really just happened? Because there's no noise, but you can see the Madrid players celebrating. And it was, it was just a weird game all around. Yeah, for sure. It's literally the worst I've seen Luis Suarez play in three years. I can remember the last time he played that badly. It was in a friendly at Anfield when he was trying to leave for Arsenal was clearly in a sulk. And that's the worst that he's played in any game since then. So what's going on? I mean, Messi wasn't even much better. Neymar didn't do a whole lot. Um, Is it a question of international duty or um, might they have their eyes on uh, the game coming up tomorrow? Yeah, I think it was a mixture of things. Like they had that chance, Suarez had that chance in the first five minutes when the ball was a long ball over the top, and Neymar got onto it and set him up with a clear open goal, and he just missed kicked it completely. And he can't do that. Suarez sometimes can miss the simplest of chances, and then ten minutes later he'll work his way past about three players and whack it in. It was a strange one. I guess they did feel because they were, you know, they were looking to go so far ahead in La Liga, and because they had Atletico coming up, and with all the the travelling going on, that that maybe did affect them. I had the feeling that as soon as Barca scored, they were just going to run away with the game, that Madrid were very defensive. They were holding on at, at times. So Barca made a good few chances. Keanu Navas made a few saves. It seemed that they were going to win. I wouldn't up. You know, most people were thinking, I, I think that Barca are going to have this one handy. Then Madrid's equalizer came out of the blue. And then suddenly at the end, Madrid were all over them. You know, Ronaldo hit the bar. Bale had that goal ruled out. It seemed to be a mental thing rather than a, than a physical thing. The, the Barca, Barca players kept out about the tactics or complained about their... Their tactics after the game, they said that they didn't really um, know what to do when Madrid kept hitting them. 
when Rakitic went off as well, it seemed to affect Barca a lot. Suddenly there was lots of space in midfield and Madrid just kept piling through onto them. So it was a combination of things, but I think it is kind of worrying to, to see from Barca's point of view just because everybody assumed, you know, they're flying, they're going to win everything, and now they're, they're starting to be doubts again. You use that word uh, worrying, Dermot, and uh, Michael Laudrup was doing the punditry for this on Sky, him, himself and Thierry Henry. He said something afterwards that I thought was quite interesting. He said, knowing Barcelona... Knowing the Catalans, and, and you know, he spent long enough at the club to, to know a thing or two uh, about the uh, about the city, about the people. He said that one loss will be enough to create some doubts. You know, it doesn't matter that they've just gone thirty nine games and beaten a record in Spanish football. You know, a club record, uh, looking invincible, best team ever, all the rest of it. Just losing one game like that will free people out and suddenly people will start to see problems and have doubts and the mood of the club is not going to be good facing into uh, this next testing, you know, sort of climax of the season. I mean, what do you think of that? Yeah, it does sound weird, all right, but I think there is something to it. The Madrid press were definitely jumping on it straight away. They have a thing called the cagometer, which is kind of basically shit-o-meter um, to see how, how much Barca are shitting themselves, which they always take out when Barca start to lose a run. Madrid have a, have a tendency to come back from far behind. They like that thing about them, and they think that, that Barcelona start to, to lose confidence, to question themselves. Piquet as well said after the game, when he was speaking on the TV, he said that we can't let this defeat slip into a big dip for ourselves, that we need to, to bounce back straight away, that we can't let this become a, a big dip. But you could even see, by the way, he was talking, that he was aware of the history of how, how things can happen around the club. It shouldn't really happen. You know, they should go out and beat Atletico on, on Tuesday and then it would be OK again. But if they don't, maybe if it's a draw, and even if they get past Atletico and get Madrid again in the semifinals or the finals, that will all start ramping up again. The, the Madrid press will start coming on about how Barca will bottle it. The Catalan press will start to get a bit worried. And it is, you know, Laudrup is correct in what he says. There, there is a tendency towards that, that type of, of feeling around Barca, even after one defeat. We've been trying to analyze the mind of Sergio Ramos employing some fairly <laughs> amateurish uh, psychological uh, techniques here Dermot my, my theory is that this man wants to get sent off especially in classicals that he, there's something there's a need for attention there um and he just he it's not just that the red mist descends it's like a systematic attempt to get sent off because i don't know he either needs to score or be red carded to really feel a part of things what do you think he does, yeah, I, I'd agree with that to, to a certain extent. He definitely does seem to want to, to be right in the spotlight. And it seemed crazy, you know, it, over, the, over the 90 minutes, it did seem really crazy. Like the first booking was, was for a silly descent to the referee after just 10 minutes. And then he was going through the back of Suarez. He was getting involved with, with little tangles and stuff. He said after the game, he kind of joked about it afterwards. It wouldn't have been so funny if, if Barca had a won, you know, had, if it had been Barca who got the late winner. But he said afterwards, if he had known how his team reacted, he would have got sent off after five minutes. It's a strange one with Ramos because, you know, he can do some things that are great and technically he's he's an excellent defender. He has all the physical attributes. He's strong. He's quick. He, he's decent on the ball. But in, in classicals especially, he seems to lose it. And, and he was he was lucky that the team didn't pay for it over the weekend. He sees himself as the, the kind of spiritual leader of the team as well as the guy who needs to get in amongst Barcelona because if they let Barca play that... You know, Barca will, will play around them. And there's not that many guys. There's Pepe as well, maybe, who's a, a physical guy. But there's not too many in the team. And he feels he needs to do it. It's strange. It doesn't really make sense. But, but they got away with it at the weekend. Yeah, well, you see, in certain clubs, the manager would be strong enough or somebody in the club would be strong enough to just not put up with this and explain that it's actually totally unacceptable to go around behaving like that, even if you are as a key player 
as Ramos obviously just, is. It's unacceptable. What, whatever about whatever you think about his behaviour in terms of whether it's like you know it's not the, it's not good sportsmanship or it's not it's it's, it's unacceptable to yeah. leave your team down a man you so know, many times. And the point that I wanted to make was that in in a lot of clubs you would have a manager in a powerful enough position that they can clamp down on this. But are Real Madrid, is, it, is this where they suffer from the years and years of managerial change? They've got a guy in there now, obviously, who's a pretty big personality, but that the, because the players in Real Madrid, just like the supporters, and just like all of us around the world, must be aware that the manager is not really seen as the key figure at the club. And maybe this is one area where that actually impacts, that players of the stature of Sergio Ramos actually are so big within within Real Madrid that they there's nobody to tell them what's what. Yeah, I, I'd go along with that. Um, with Ramos, you know, he's played over 100 times for Spain, but he's never been sent off for Spain, which tells you something that there is a difference there, that when he plays for, for a club or country, he, he reacts differently or reacts differently. He does. He is that larger-than-life character that feels he's the leader of the team. There's a bit of the John Terry's about it, I think, the way John Terry dominated at, at Chelsea. They saw the, the photo after the game in the dressing room. He had his armband on, despite having no... No jersey on. When yeah, he, he, he'd taken the armband off. That's even better than Ronaldo. And put it on. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he took or it off when he was sent off and put it back on for the photograph. <laughs> so yeah, Zidane. Like Zidane, I don't think he's going to come out and criticize his players. It's definitely not one for one. He seems to have a really good relationship with, with them from when his time as assistant coach under Carlo Ancelotti. He was the guy who, you know, talked to them, put his arm around them, speaks to them one on one as an equal, uh, and asked them to do stuff rather than than telling them exactly what he wants them to do. He puts a lot of trust in. In, in his players, maybe that's the only thing you can do when you have such a, a dressing room like Madrid. And I'm not talking. Yeah, I'm not talking about coming out and criticizing them publicly, Dermot. Everyone's aware that that's probably counterproductive. I just mean, would Zidane even in private say to Sergio Ramos, "You were a bit stupid there, mate. Get for a start, get that captain's armband off you." And secondly, <laughs> Ronaldo, put some pants on. And anyway, back to you, back to you, Sergio. Uh, like that's just not on. I yeah, I don't think he will. I I don't know whether. Maybe over time he might try and impose himself a bit more, but since he's come in, he's been very positive with the players, and I, I think he, he sees them kind of. He has a kind of friendly attitude with them rather than a boss. He's trying to be their friend. Doesn't work so well in the smaller games when they go away to Las Palmas or, or Betis or, or that, but in, in the big games he gets them up for it. I'd agree that somebody needs to maybe say that to Ramos, but at the moment to, to start a big row with him is probably not not such a good idea. So close to the end of the season. Ronaldo uh, scored a great goal at the end and he was he was kind of getting stronger in the games that went on. It seemed to me that there was, I don't know if this was your impression, maybe it just happens every time he plays there, but it seemed like there was a, a special relish to the booing that he was getting for some reason. It seemed particularly intense, but um, as often happens with him, it, he seems to, to thrive with that. He got better at the game and done, scored the winning goal. Um, the most notable, the, the most weird aspect of his performance, though, were, were several kind of defensive runs that he made. Um, I remember one, at one moment in commentary, the, the commentators were joking about this. He'd run back into sort of right-back position, made a tackle, and got up, and, and there was this disbelief, that's, that's Ronaldo. And the, guy, you know, the commentators were saying, yeah, I, I had to check, I had to, <laughs> had to be sure. So is this a case of Zinedine Zidane can get Cristiano Ronaldo to do things that nobody else could... Uh, managed to get him to do or you know would you tend to give the credit to Ronaldo for you know he realizes this is a big game it's it's actually worth putting in a shift I'd say it's a bit about I'd say it's the flip side of what I was saying earlier on about Sudan being so friendly with the players and asking them rather than telling them to do stuff it was similar enough maybe to the game in Bayern Munich a couple of years ago when Madrid you know ha hammered Bayern and they all worked really hard and Bale came back as well I think on the bigger occasions 
Ronaldo knows that everybody's watching him. He feels he has to do do running. Maybe he knows the team needs it, whereas in other games the team doesn't need it. But he, he does tend to run more against Barca or in the big Champions League games or a lot more than, than he would in other games. I, I don't think he had very much of an influence on the game. Even his, his running wasn't making too much of a difference until the last 10, 10 15 minutes when it opened up and he hit the bar and then he, he scored as well. He was delighted, and he does have a decent record at, at the Camp Nou. I think he prefers playing at the Camp Nou in Clásicos than at the Bernabeu, where the, the whistling sends teams to get on his nerves, whereas at, at the Camp Nou, when they whistle him, and they did, it was really loud every time he got the ball, even from, from the first couple of minutes they were on his back. But he maybe thrives in that more than the Bernabeu, where he expects to be supported more. Dermot, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Mill. Cheers, guys. We didn't mention Gareth Bale's performance there, can uh, thought he was good. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, one of his... One of his better games, one of the games where he looked a bit more relevant. In fact, that header, it's disappointing for him that I was, I was looking at him celebrating with Ronaldo and thinking, oh, God, Ronaldo gets so much glory. Really, that was Bale, Bale hit such a good header earlier on. It yeah. should have been allowed that we talked about earlier. Yeah, it was a great header. Uh, he also set up the winning goal for Ronaldo, obviously. Um, had a few good moments in the game. I mean, he is a bit kind of a moments player. You know, he's not like kind of a you know, messy type who will who can control the entire game. He's never really no. going to do that. But he does have incredible blistering uh, athleticism, which was <laughs> just becoming so obvious. The gap between these teams as it went on, you know, Barcelona almost didn't look like athletes at all. You know, it's just being these guys tearing past them. Um, that was a worrying kind of thing to see. You know, when this sort of aura of invincibility shatters a bit, when suddenly your best players aren't really doing it, mm-hmm. It's like, hang on, we've got like PK and Mascherano. <laughs> you know, Mascherano's tiny. PK can't run at all. You know, you start to look a little bit vulnerable. If they they desperately need that control at all times, or or they just get ripped apart like a lace curtain. Have we answered the question? Uh, what was the question? What the hell is wrong with Sergio Ramos? Yeah, I think we I think we answered it pretty soon after you asked it. Actually, <laughs> that he's an idiot. Old. <laughs> all right, we're sticking with that. Yeah, sticking with the idiot line. Happy enough with that, Ken? Yeah, happy with that. Thanks, Ken. Uh, thank you. Nice very much, Ken. Ken. Thanks, Owen. We Thanks, have got Richie Sadler talking about that doping story in uh, in the UK, featuring an Irish doctor. We've referred in various outlets as, as a UK uh, UK doctor. Maybe this is something we can cover in the other. His his precise or or <laughs> birth of origin of birth. What am I talking about here? Place of origin. Place of origin. Birthplace. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank, thank you, Owen. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.